This morning's scripture is 1 Peter 3, 15 through 18 from the ESV version. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let me start with a question today. Why are you a Christian? Uh, Some of you saw in the news this week uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame burned to the ground, and I I couldn't help but think that there are people in the world who are looking at that, and they're saying that's a metaphor for Christianity, because Christianity is burning down. And I wonder if that's not the case in our world as they look at us. And if that's true, it has always been true. Some of you have uh, what's called the message version in your hands, and a guy named Eugene Peterson is behind that message version. Here's what he said. He said, 1,800 years or so of Hebrew history, capped by a full exposition of Jesus Christ, tells us that God's revelation to himself is rejected far more often than it is accepted. It is dismissed by far more people that embrace it. It has either been attacked or ignored by every major culture or civilization in which it has given its witness. Magnificent Egypt, fierce Assyria, beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, enlightenment France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Maoist China, the pursuit of happiness, America, the community of God's people has survived in all of these cultures and civilizations, but always as a minority, always marginal to the mainstream, never statistically significant. And I wonder, historically, it's not hard to see that Peterson is right. Christianity has had a massive influence over billions and billions of people. It's it's changed the eternal destinies of those people. But in the grander scheme of history, it seems like it's always the minority. It's always marginal to the mainstream. It's never statistically relevant. It is what Jesus said it would be. It is the narrow road. And so the right question to ask as we come today on a great Uh, day in the history uh, and the calendar of the Christian year, the right question to ask is, why are you a Christian? Why would you adopt this way? Why would you believe these things? Why would we intentionally choose a path that is less traveled? And so today we begin this series that we're simply calling Why Christian? And we're going to talk about Christianity, even though it's often drugged through the mud as a backwater superstition for hicks and hillbillies, but after all that mudslinging, why it still makes sense. And today we're going to talk about that. Next week we're going to talk about why Christians don't have to choose between God and science. The next week we're going to talk about why Christians can trust Scripture. On Mother's Day, which is our baby dedication day, we're going to talk about why Christians have better sex. Thank you very much. We, we like to categorize things in similar boxes around here. 
And so we're gonna do that on Mother's Day. Uh, why Christians embrace suffering is a topic. Why, after all of the, um, this, the culturally incorrect notions of hell, that it's outdated, why we still believe that? Why Christians are hypocrites? And finally, we're gonna wrap up by talking about why everyone should love the exclusivity of Jesus. And what we're gonna find is that it is the most inclusive exclusivity that there is. And so, in our text today, Peter wrote this. Always be prepared to make a defense. When somebody asks, why are you a Christian? It's our responsibility to have answers that hold up, and that's what this series is about. So today, there's a very broad brush that I'm going to be using. In a world that calls Christianity foolish, why do I believe? Why am I a Christian? And there are, of course, many, many reasons, but I want to give you a few that are close to my heart today, and I hope you can resonate, resonate with or adopt at least one of them as your own. Number one, why I'm a Christian. It's still incomparable. It's still incomparable. Peter says, be ready to defend what we believe. And it's significant that he thought that the Christian faith was defensible. It means that Christianity has teeth by the way of logic and by the way of reason. It is not, as some believe, just some blind leap into the dark of faith. No. Christianity can be defended, and in fact, it has been, and it still is being defended, and defended very well by people with much larger brains than you or I will ever have. By the way, I'm going to include a bibliography in our podcast, so as you check these sermons out uh, each week uh, by way of our sermon podcast, I will list about a half a dozen books each week that I'm kind of drawing this material from, and you can do further study. And if we're going to defend Christianity, first, we have to know what it is. And a lot of people, unfortunately, don't. Many assume that they know what Christianity is. Even seasoned Christians fall into this kind of trap. What is the gospel? And the easiest way to understand the message of Christianity is to think of it like this. Christianity is a rescue. It's a rescue. And there are a lot of scriptures that I put up there. I'll, I'll leave that slide up there so that you can jot those down because those aren't in your notes. But the, the best one is probably in Galatians 1.4. Paul says that Christ came to deliver us. And that word is the word that we would use for rescue. Christianity is a rescue mission. I want you to imagine someone who can't swim and they find themselves in the middle of a very large lake or body of water. They have no boat, they have no life jacket, they can't swim, it's just them in the open water and they are flailing for survival. And in that situation, nothing less than a complete rescue from an outside source will save them. Somebody has to come along in a boat and jump into the water and pull them up into the boat in order for them to be saved. That's their only chance. And that's a good picture of where we are spiritually. The propensity to sin is in our nature. 
All of us have sinned. We've done things that the Bible calls missing the mark. That's the definition of sin. And God asks us to aim for perfection in our life, but we just can't do it. He sets the bar, for example, at don't lie, but we can't even do that. We tell lies all the time. And what God demands is that we live perfectly. That's the only way that we can have a relationship with God who is perfect himself, but we can't do that. The bar is too high. We sin and it separates us from God. And spiritually, we find ourselves in the middle of a lake of sin, not able to swim, drowning in our sin. And death is the inevitable consequence unless something happens. Death is what we get for our sin. We could say literally we're sunk, right? But God decides to rescue us. He sees us drowning in sin and he does something amazing. He inserts himself into the picture so that we can be saved. Jesus comes on the scene. He jumps into the water of sin with us. He makes sure that we are pulled out of it. But in order to do so, he is the one who ends up drowning in sin. He drowns in all of our sin at the cross and his cross pays the price for all of that sin that I did and you did so that we can live. He gives up his life so that we can have life. The gospel, Christianity is a rescue. That's what it's about. In John chapter 11, there's a story that's pretty familiar, even if a person doesn't read the Bible too much. It's the story of Jesus' close friend named Lazarus. And Jesus gets word that his close friend Lazarus has passed away. And he isn't able to make it uh, to where Lazarus is buried for four days. And he finally gets there. And if you've ever read chapter 11, you of John, you you know that there's some amazing things that happen. He stands outside of Lazarus's tomb and he weeps because this is his friend and he's, uh, his friend is gone and Lazarus has been in the grave for four days and he was moved, so moved that he wept. And then he said, take the stone from the entrance of the tomb. And his intent was to show everybody there that he had the keys to resurrection and life, that he could rescue us. And so he said to Lazarus, come out of the grave. And Lazarus did. Back from the dead, out of the grave, just as alive as ever. And no doubt there was a lot of celebrating going on. The reason I tell you that story is because later in that chapter, you immediately see that raising Lazarus from the tomb was too visible a miracle for Jesus. It's too public. This is too much. The religious leaders are looking on and this is too much for them. And so in verse 53, it says, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And so understand what's going on. In raising Lazarus, Jesus has sealed his own doom. It was too much. He had gone too far. His enemies said, now he has to die. And so Jesus, Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing all along. He knew that there would be consequences to raising Lazarus. And he knew that the only way to get Lazarus out of the grave was to put himself into the grave. And that's what he's done for us. Jesus knew that the only way to stop our funeral was to cause his own funeral. He had to go to the cross. Jesus knew that the only way he was going to save us from the jaws of death 
was for him to experience the divine wrath and justice of sin. And he took what we deserved. And unless that happens, we cannot be saved. And so Christianity is a rescue mission. And that, that is incomparable. There's nothing else like it. Christianity is the only religious system that says this. Christianity is the only paradigm that says God went to a tomb so that we could walk out of one. That's the only one that says it. Every other religious way says that man has to reach up. Man has to pray enough or meditate enough or mark your body enough or keep this list or eat only foods that qualify. Do all of these things to climb your way up to God. In other words, learn to swim yourself while you're drowning in the sea of sin and that's how you can get to God. Good luck with that. Christianity is still the only path that declares, no, 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 that's not it. We don't have to go up to God. God has come down to us. And in Jesus, he reaches down because we could never do enough to reach up. And he pulls us up out of our peril. And there's still no other way like Christianity. C.S. Lewis, during his time as a professor at Oxford, stumbled into a room one day and his colleagues were debating why Christianity is different from all of the other religions, and they couldn't really come up with a good answer. And he said, oh, that's easy. He said, Christianity is different because of grace. Christianity is different from all of the other ways because God's grace is reaching to us. That's the incomparable uniqueness of this way that we follow. And it's either a gift, it's a gift to either choose or reject. Here's number two, why I'm a Christian. It is still a game changer. It is still a game changer. The person of Jesus makes it that way. Years ago, broadcaster Larry King was asked if he could interview one person in all of history, who would it be? And without hesitation, he said, Jesus Christ. And they said, why? He said, if, if I could only ask him one question, it would be this. I would ask him if he really was born of a virgin because the answer to that question changes everything. And he's right, it does. We don't hang our beliefs as Christians on the hooks of fantasy or fairy tale. We hang them on truth. And Peter says in our text that Christianity can be defended. Here's what is true that still makes Christianity a game changer. Number one, Jesus is real. Jesus is real. It's really popular right now, this thought. Jesus never existed at all. The average 34-year-old Uber driver who's living in the basement of his mom's house and chiming in on Reddit will adopt this view. And he will type on his computer and he will say that Jesus' followers are idiots that Jesus never existed, that Jesus is just an amalgamation of various ancient mythologies all rolled together. Jesus was constructed by the church, just like lots of other mythical characters and molded out of stories throughout history by different cultures of people. The problem is that no legitimate scholar who doesn't spend a lot of time on Reddit, by the way, takes that seriously. Even the most critical skeptics of Christianity will still agree that Jesus 
existed. They argue over a lot after that, but they almost unanimously agree that he existed. And so go ahead and read Reddit. That, that post will be funny and it will be witty and there will be entertainment value. It just won't be true, okay? At least 10 first century historians and writers outside of the Bible writers, not counting Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, Peter, 10 historians, aside from those guys in the first century, mentioned Jesus by name. Some of them even had anti-Christian agendas, but they still write about a man named Jesus who was crucified, who, have, who was said to have raised from the dead three days later, and they write about his followers named Christians. H.G. Wells sums it up very well. He says this, I am a historian. I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian, that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in history. He's the center. That's what H.G. Wells says. So let's take that and let's, that, let's make that number two. Jesus is the center of everything. Jesus is the most dominant figure in all history. But it's not just because he existed, right? It's because of what he claimed while he existed. He claims to be everything. And his claims make him the most divisive person to have ever lived. And that's, that, that sounds strange coming from a stage on Easter Sunday that Jesus is divisive, but it is absolutely true. Because when you throw the name of Jesus out, people either get gushingly enthusiastic about Jesus or they get really wildly hostile, one or the two. He's polarizing. Why? Because of what he claimed. He's still the only person in history to have defined a religion around his person. If you made a list of all the influencers in world history, you would, the top of the list would no doubt include Moses and Buddha and Muhammad. But if you look at what those guys claimed, they never claimed to be anything more than men. They never claimed to be anything but pointers. Moses even did miracles, but he himself said, no, I'm just a messenger. And he pointed somebody else. But Christ is the only one who came onto the scene and said, I'm more than the messenger. Christ claimed pre-existence. He showed up and he says, you know that Abraham guy? Before he was, I am. Christ claimed to have come from God himself in heaven. Christ claimed to be equal with God himself. Christ claimed to be Israel's God specifically. And that's important because Israel believed in only one God, only one and if Jesus comes up and, and he pops up and he says, I'm just one God among many gods, that's no big deal, really. But from within the Jewish framework, where they only believed in one God, for this man to step up and say, I am that one God, that's huge. And the Jewish people, it's a big enough claim that Jewish people would seek the death penalty for a statement like that. And that's why Jesus went to a cross. He claimed that he would be able to do what only God alone could do, forgive sin. But he did it over and over and over. He claimed to be the only way to life. He claimed that one day he would come back and judge the world. 
That's an astounding claim. And then he went further. He went further than just claims. He taught his followers to pray to him. John 14, John 15, John 16. Jesus accepts worship that was reserved for God alone, but he accepts it for himself. He claims titles that were given to God alone, shepherd of Israel and Alpha and Omega and the Almighty and lots of others that we could point to. And then he went further still and he takes the sacred religious symbols of Judaism and he redraws them around himself. There were three things that the Jewish people considered absolutely sacred. The temple, the Torah, which is the Old Testament law of scripture, and the the promise that God would come back at the end of time and rule Zion, which was another name for Jerusalem. And guess what Jesus does? He steps up and he says, you know that temple you don't need anymore because I'm the temple. You know that scripture? I am fulfilling the scripture. It's there because of me. And guess what? I'm going to come back at the end of time and I'm going to judge, and I'm going to bring salvation, and I'm going to rule in Zion, Jerusalem. Others pointed to God. Jesus steps up and points to himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am God. And then he proved it. Jesus did things that only God would be able to do. He turns water into wine. He walks on water. He heals the lame. He heals the sick. He heals the blind. He calms storms. He feeds 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread. He stops funerals with resurrections. And then he resurrected himself. And because of these claims, he is the center of everything. It is impossible to remain neutral about Jesus. You either have to accept him as he is or reject him as a total complete fraud. There is no other option. You can reject it, but you cannot ignore it. Christ matters. Christianity matters. And he is still the center. And because he's the center, he's still a game changer. That makes all the difference. That's number three. Jesus is the difference. Our lives become complete when we trust and follow Jesus. They change really quickly. Seven things. Number one, Christianity makes sense of who we are in the world. We embrace both reason and faith. Reason helps us to discover things about experience, and faith helps us to discover things that are beyond our experience. And Christianity gives us a believable framework about who we are and why we are here on this planet. Number two, Christianity infuses life with purpose. Christianity holds that this life lived on earth is important because this life determines the next one. This life plays into a much bigger picture of what's going to happen for all of eternity. Number three, Christianity offers a solution to the loneliness we all feel. When our destiny is linked with God, we discover we will never be alone. Our deepest relationship is is with God himself, and that relationship will never end because God will never end. Number four, Christianity gives hope in the face of suffering and death. Loss should be the destroyer of joy. When tornadoes happen, and when cancer happens, when miscarriages happen, and brain tumors, and bombings, and disasters, to still have joy in the middle of those things is absolutely unnatural. But Christianity says you can have joy anyway. 
Because if God can bring life and victory out of the death of his own son, then he can bring life and victory out of whatever you're going through. Number five, Christianity gives hope that relationships will outlast the grave. Oh, I love this one. For Christians, death is just temporal. It's not the end. It's not final. We don't say goodbye to ev- forever to the people we love. We will see them again. Number six, Christianity makes death just a doorway. Other people in the world have to think in two, sta- two stages. Life, death, that's it. Christians get to think in three stages. There's life, there's death, and then there's the life to come. And the one in the middle, death, just becomes a door that we walk through to get to the third stage. Finally, Christianity enables us to become the people we were always meant to be. In Jesus, God sees us as perfect people, even though we're not. And that makes us want to be better. Rich Mullins said it this way, we are not saved because we're good. We are good because we are saved. That's right. Lastly, why am I Christian today? I'm a Christian because it's still the best explanation. Still is. Jesus is the most influential figure in history. He's a historical figure, and the great claims that he made and events that defined his life really happened, and that makes the resurrection, the thing that culminates in his life, the most important event in world history, and that God created and would come into the world and rescue men by dying himself and then prove that work by rising from the dead is still the best explanation for life as we know it. There are a couple of fronts that I wanted to talk about today. One is just philosophically. I'm going to skip that, okay? Uh, I'll I'll blog about it this week uh, in our email update. If you don't have uh, that email update coming your way, drop us your email and we'll get that out to you. The second way today is historically. Historically, it's still the best explanation for what went on in the first century. The belief that God came in the flesh and Jesus and died for sins and resurrected back to life, it's still the best explanation for how the world got turned upside down in the first century by a very small group of people who said, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. This little small group of people lived in contrast to the world around them. For the first time ever in the world history, they gave a new dignity to women in a culture that treated women as property. That's what Christians did. For the first time ever, Christians went out of the world and they said, you know what? I think we can give a sacrificial health care to people who are dying of plague and disease. Sometimes at their own life, they would help people get over their disease. This little group of people in the first century had a new focus on family, health, and growth, and babies were adopted. That was unheard of. And men actually loved women and were faithful to them. That was weird. And a remarkable change in worship took place overnight. They changed their worship from Sabbath to Sunday. And finally, they had this willingness to embrace death as martyrs. They would even sing while they were facing the sword. Why? Because they knew that death did not have the final word in human story. That's what they believed. And they lived as though they knew the outcome of all history 
itself. And when this first generation of Christians faced this question, why are you a Christian? They gave a very simple, very straightforward answer. They said, because he is risen. And as they worked that out, what that meant that Jesus rose from the dead, they came up with all kinds of things that that meant their life should be about. And that kind of life change still happens. It doesn't, it's not just for the first century, it's for our century. And it's happening all around you. People understand that Jesus rose from the dead for them and they think, holy cow, what, how do I live in light of that? And all kinds of life change happen. One writer suggests that it's only through what he calls the Easter effect that these changes make sense. The social changes that followed Good Friday only occur if these people actually believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And he, he calls these first Christians nobodies. And he writes this. He says, there is no accounting for the rise of Christianity without weighing the revolutionary effect on those nobodies of what they call the resurrection. They encountered one whom they embraced as the risen Lord, whom they first knew as an itinerant Jewish rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, and who had died an agonizing and shameful death on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem. The best explanation for what took place in the first century is still Christianity. It is still these first believers believing he is risen. There was once a Muslim college student who came to believe in Jesus Christ and one of his friends was shocked. Why why in the world did you become a follower of Jesus? And he said to his friend, it's, it's simple, really. I want you to imagine that you're walking down a road and you come to a fork in the road. And at that fork, there are two people there that you can choose. You can choose one of the two to follow them as your guide to whichever road that you think they think uh, you should go on. And of those two people, one of them is dead and the other is alive. Which one would you follow? Why am I a Christian today? Because the tomb is empty. Because the person that walked out of that tomb, Jesus, is God. And because that God named Jesus Christ, there's no other king like him. I'm going to call the band up and uh, we're going to sing to end our uh, time together today. And here, here's what I want you to, uh, I want, want to impress this on you. That no one, no one has ever loved you like Jesus has loved you. Some of you have come today and you're here because, you know, somebody invited you. And some, some of you are really wondering why we do this Christian thing. And I want, to, I want you to just, just think about who really loves you in your life. Your boat can't love you like Jesus has loved you. Your house can't love you like Jesus has loved you. Not even your spouse can love you like Jesus has loved you. There is no one that has loved you enough to jump into the water of sin himself and pull you out. 
But that's what Jesus has done. And that's why we believe in him. Father, we thank you that there are valid reasons, and we're going to keep exploring them over the next few weeks, to believe that indeed he is risen. Father, I pray that as people consider this person of Jesus Christ, that you would lead them to what they need to hear so that they come to know this great Savior of ours who has loved us more than any other person in the universe could love us. Father, we thank you that Jesus overcame the grave. And because he overcame the grave, there is nothing that he cannot overcome. We thank you. And it's in the strong, resurrected name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. All the people said, amen. I'd like you to stand. We're going to worship together one last song. Maybe this king is somebody you have never bowed the knee to. And we want to invite you during this time. I'll be up here. There will be some people up here that can pray with you. Um, Maybe today is your day where you come and you say, I want to make Jesus my Lord because I realize that nobody has ever loved me like him. I realize I am dead in my sins and without him as my savior, there's no hope for me. And so I need rescue. Would you do that today? Amen.